welcome to this episode of Mind Matters with Mia. I'm really glad you're here. I'm Mia Yen, your host, and today I have with me a very special guest, Mr. Paul Blount, a licensed clinical social worker. In my past few episodes, we've been talking about mental health in general, but today we're going to dive deeper and focus on one specific subsection of psychology and mental health, which is psychoses and schizophrenia. Paul is an expert on psychoses and its related mental illness, schizophrenia, which actually has a great amount of stigma surrounding it, and he was kind enough to join me today to talk about this intriguing topic. Hi. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Thank you. So please ask your questions. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay, so <laughs> I'll get started. Okay, so to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your educational background, why you became interested in psychology and mental health? So my educational background, um, it took about 10 years for me to get my uh, master's degree in clinical social work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started kind of that path. My interest kind of started because I had ADHD. So with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, I had a really hard time in education, in learning, and anything related to learning whatsoever. Um, and because of that, I got bullied a lot. Um, not just by students but and peers, but actually, funny enough, by teachers. <laughs> but that's another story. Um, but the education system at the time kind of failed. So I really wasn't in a good place where I was getting a good education. So because of that, I went to a private school. My parents took me and put me in a private school. And I actually was just so lucky to get a teacher who understood me, understood ADHD, and how to work with someone like me. And I flourished from there. But I had a very strong interest in mental health because of that. So that's how I kind of went to, like, is there people or are there people that help others with, you know, mental health problems? And so funny enough, instead of me going directly into that field, I went into law enforcement. <laughs> and so I don't know why I did, but I went into law enforcement and I became a police dispatcher. So I was actually a 911 dispatcher for 10 years. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty funny and I don't know why I went that route, but it led me to social work because I realized that, yes, I was helping people, but in a very different fashion from what I would like to do. So I wanted to help people. That was my calling. I know that's what I wanted to do. But then I wasn't really helping in law enforcement. Um, And so I was like, what can I do? And I looked into psychology, psychiatry, social work, and social work was really just like a hit home for me. It was everything I wanted. It combined the recovering medical model and it also combined like just psychosocial efforts of rehabilitation and theory. Basically, that's how I kind of ended up being uh, LCSW. So I went to school, got my bachelor's degree in uh, sociology, and then I went to get my master's degree at Cal State Northridge. They have the, I think it's the second best program right now. It was, I don't even know if it was like placed when I went, <laughs> Now they're considered the second best program. So I was very fortunate to have top-notch teachers who taught UCLA, USC, some from Harvard. I mean, very educated, super smart, intelligent doctors that taught me. Um, And so I got my MSW there. And then I went on and got my associateship, my residencies, my clinical clerkships, all that um, in order to get licensed. And that took probably about 10 years to do in, in all. And then I took my licensing boards, which... Holy mother of mercy, that was fun. <laughs> Studying all those, oh, not fun, I know. Um, but yeah, that's how I kind of got into this field and how I got my education. I hope I answered that question. I go off. Oh, yeah, for sure. I apologize. 
so that seemed kind of like a really long road for you, but now you're at the point that you're happy with your job and everything. I am. I'm, I'm super happy with my job. I absolutely love it. I actually am in forensics. So wow. yeah, it's an interesting position to be in. It's an ever-changing field in forensics and it's never the same. So yeah, so I, I love my job. I very much love my job. So how does forensics have to do with your social work in your daily life? Totally. That's a great question. So it, for me, I started out actually um, serving the homeless community as a social mm-hmm. worker. So when I was an MSW, I wasn't licensed. I started out serving the homeless community and it was an absolutely amazing position. I would outreach in Hollywood and West Hollywood and like go out on the streets and meet these people where they were and met them where they're at. Like it was such a cool, what we call in the field, like true social work experience. Mm-hmm. Then I noticed that all these people had criminal justice involved backgrounds. So I kind of noticed like I really, as a social worker at that time, couldn't help them too much because the criminal justice system was very prohibiting. So they would be involved and because they would be involved in certain aspects of the justice system, I couldn't get them housed or I couldn't get them proper services or I couldn't because everything had to go through the court. So what I noticed was is that the Department of Mental Health, who was heavily involved with their forensic cases or their criminal cases, had clinicians like myself. The only thing is you had to be licensed. And I was like, well, I was going to get licensed one day. So when I got licensed, I fell into county work. So I work for the county of Los Angeles. I'm a clinical social worker, I'm a clinician is what they call us. So I'm a forensic clinician. And basically every day I go into work and I do psychosocial, psychiatric and psychological kind of social assessments on pretty severe charges, murder, rape you name it, I'd most likely assess them. Wow, okay. Yeah, so you probably will have questions based on that. That is how I kind of got into it. And in social work, you know, it is such a broad field. It's not just, you know, a lot of people have a misunderstanding that social workers take away kids all day or a social worker hands out bus tokens and, you know, benefits. But in reality, we do as much or more than psychologists or psychiatrists or you know, these people with PhDs and like everything, but we just have a master's degree, but we can do everything the psychologist can do, except for maybe testing, personality testing. And I don't prescribe medication, but I know a lot about it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we're educated in almost the same fashion, in the same vein. It's just, we are, we only have a master's. So think of us as like a physician assistant who is like a little doctor. We're kind of the same thing for psychiatrists. So social work is so broad that we can do really whatever we want. And so because of that, I fell into forensics and I just haven't looked back. That's really interesting. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I didn't know it was so broad with all of the subsections. Like I didn't even think forensics would be something that social work would cover. It is so broad. It's funny. I have people in animals, like veterinary social work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I have friends who do that. I have friends who are just practicing clinicians, just therapists, general therapists. I have friends who work in ERs. I have friends who work in OBGYN, like uh, labor and delivery units. We are everywhere because mental health now, thank God, is less stigmatized mm-hmm. and more open. And they're realizing because you know everything's a business that we as clinicians are cheaper than doctors. So they'll bring us in and hire us over a psychologist because we can do the exact same thing but for less money. (laughs) So that's why we're everywhere. Okay, so I remember you telling me that you specialize in psychosis and trauma, if I'm Mm -hmm. correct. Mm -hmm. So what got you into those specific topics as well? 
psychosis and trauma oh my word okay so in school they asked me to like we were a generalized program but they kind of encouraged you to specialize as much as you could mm-hmm. and i you know being bullied as a child i was had a lot of trauma growing up and because of that i went to therapy i did all my thing and i'm way better now thank god but the funny thing is is you know that leads you to wanting to know more about you and more about society and why trauma exists. What is trauma? So that's how I got into the trauma piece. It was because I'm me and I was traumatized and I wanted to know what is going on in my brain, right? So I researched the mother out of that and I specialized in that in school. But then when I got out, I worked a lot with, in my clinical rounds and stuff, I worked a lot with psychotic patients. So all my patients were all psychotic. None of them had trauma. And I was like, but I wanted trauma. Like I'm a trauma... Like they call us traumatol or traumaticians or traumatologists. And I'm like, I want to be a traumatologist. Like this is not, and they're like, and so they put you in places on purpose that you won't be comfortable in, in residencies. And I fell in love with that population. Psychosis is so beyond complicated and it's so stigmatized and it's so misunderstood that creates that stigmatization. I fell in love with the field and then I fell in love with that subject and then the people the people who suffer from psychoses are the nicest, most misunderstood people you'll probably ever meet. And that's what really got me interested is that stigmatization behind the psychotic piece of it. So that's how I got into my specialties. I don't know a lot about psychosis and I obviously am really interested in it, but even from knowing a little bit like I do, things being misunderstood is the reason everything is stigmatized. It's just a little bit of education that leads to reducing fear. And that's why people are so judgmental sometimes. Yes. And I completely agree with you. And that is completely right. You know, when you're misunderstood, people just don't want to, they don't, people don't like change. People don't like the unknown. So because of that, you know, when someone is psychotic, they can be very impulsive and people are scared of that. And then the media is really good at making it worse. You know, movies like The Joker, right? You take someone who had a severe illness and instead of trying to understand them, they just stigmatized the crap out of them, made them a murderer. And that's the kind of thing that happens all the time in, in, in psychoses. And it's really sad because the media just perpetuates it over and over and over again and the public eats it up. So like you said, education is vital. Yeah, because especially with the media, I think that's what people see everywhere. So they just normalize it and they think it's okay and it just keeps going on like that. Over and over again, it's horrible. So can you explain a little bit about, I know you said it's super complicated, but just a little overview of what psychosis is and schizophrenia? Yeah, like I said, it's highly complicated, but the best thing to kind of make it a synopsis, I guess, is characterized by the impairment of relationships with reality. It's symptom-based, and it's very much a series of combined mental disorders. It comes in a series of positive hallucinations, delusions, Um, And then negative symptoms, which are very affect or mood-based, or there's no emotion on your face, as we call affect. There's nothing there. It's like staring into a blank slate. So psychosis is pretty much summarized as a characterized impairment with reality. How do psychosis and schizophrenia come into play with your daily life? What a question. (laughs) Um, A normal everyday for me at work 
is I go in and I get my patient list. And then when I go in there, I see my patients and 80% of them have psychoses. I deal with what they call moderate patients. I also have very severe patients, what we call forensic inpatient. I don't see them as often, but when I do see them, I admit them to the hospital. And the psychosis plays a heavy role. These people commit crimes, they get arrested. They come to our unit when they get arrested and go to jail, and they're usually in chaos or crisis. So our job is to stabilize them as quickly as possible. And that's through interventions, treatment, drugs, stuff like that. The psychotic piece plays in because usually they're having active hallucinations or active psychosis, so they're not in touch with reality when they're seeing me. I have many a patients who are literally actively hallucinating when they're talking and having a conversation with me. And because of that, it's very hard for them to concentrate. They're having literally multiple conversations that they're hearing at the exact same time they're listening to me. Wow. So it's very hard for them to pay attention to my voice. So there's strategies and interventions we can use to help them concentrate a little better. However, it's not foolproof. But with that comes other things. I deal with people with mood disorders bipolar, depression, major, like manic, like with the bipolar piece. There's something called schizoaffective disorder, which is literally a combination of psychoses and a mood disorder put together. And that is the worst thing anyone could have. But my typical job role is to stabilize in crises, people like that, and then also do forensic evaluations for the sheriffs and Department of Correctional Health. So my job is to go in there every month as mandated by the Department of Justice, and assess these people for stabilization and any type of crises. So if I notice that they're stabilized, good, we're doing our job, everything's fine, I could recommend them for release, we're good. But if I notice they're always in constant crises and nothing we're doing is stabilizing them, I admit them to a higher level of care. So my job is basically to assess murderers, burglars, robbers, petty thefts, <laughs> you name it. I even ask about their crimes, like what made you commit it? And I would say, 70, 80% of the time, their mental health disorder had a huge re was a huge reason why they committed that crime. That's really interesting. I didn't know that that's where you get your main source of patients. And so I'm actually in a jail with the deputy sheriff standing next to me, and their job is to protect me. And I see my patient, and I do my job there. Okay, so what are the types of conversations that you're having with your patients to help stabilize them? So the conversations are very random, but basically when we're in crisis mode or a patient is in crises, my main job is symptom management. So I look at, let's say you have schizophrenia and someone comes in with active psychoses and they're just, you know, they have hallucinations, delusions, they're in, um, you know, maybe a manic episode, they're in a manic mode where they're very hyperactive and you, they can't be controlled. We, I work with a psychiatrist to use um, medication interventions or medication therapies. And that can maybe mean, you know, taking some Benadryl and Haldol and then giving it to them and that calms them down immediately. We have to get them to what we call a baseline. Once we get them to a baseline, I can do a proper, like I could properly intervene, do psychotherapeutic work, do drug interventions, stuff like that. When you're in the room with a patient, what are the symptoms that are characteristic of someone going through an episode of psychosis? I know yeah. we were talking about the symptoms earlier, but how can you tell that they're like actively going through that? Sometimes it's very underlying. Sometimes we as clinicians have to like really, really listen to our intuition because psychiatry and mental health is very much an art form. We have tons of science, which is fabulous, but unlike medicine, 
it's where it's very can be can be very concrete psychiatry is very black it's not very black and white it's very gray sometimes Mm -hmm. with features sometimes we see very oh like like overt features like in your face features of them talking to themselves right we call that responding to internal stimuli so they're hearing a voice like you're hearing me right now like any listener would be hearing me but it's in their head and they're actually hearing it out loud and they're talking back to it so a good example is i have patients who will be all like i'll be like so how are you doing today mr so-and-so and And they'll be like oh i'm good and i'm like great can you tell me what you're feeling shut up stop talking to me (laughs) <laughs> and they'll start going off on what we call tangential thinking because they're actually responding to another voice that's not in the room or based in reality. Mm. Uh, I have tons of that. I have people who are very, you know, in your face about it who will tell me, I can't talk to you because my um, so-and-so, my voice, they usually identified as my voice, is telling me I can't talk to you right now, right? So that would be indicative of paranoid delusion. So the voice is telling them, don't talk to him, he's bad. I would say about 70 to 80% of hallucinations are very degrading. They are, it's very interesting. And we think that has to do with some like, we're not quite sure why, (laughs) actually there's dopamine um, theories, but it's very interesting how they're very degrading and self-deprecating. And they're also very paranoid. And then also I have patients who say that they hear children laughing all the time, which would freak me out, (laughs) but that's just me. Um, and also they hear bells or random noises or they see shadows on the floor or very scary things sometimes they witness. And then there's very covert, like very people that you really have to depend on your intuition and clinical skills, be like, are you psychotic? Because some of them, the delusions can sound so real that you believe them, right? And so you have to do some investigative work and be like, was that was that real? Do you really know Bill Gates? <laughs> like, I mean, these are things they tell me. I have patients who come in all the time. Sometimes the delusions are so believable that you're like, I have a patient right now who tells me that he is finding the cure for cancer. You go in to investigate. It's not real. But then I had a patient who told me he was a PhD and worked for the government. Come to find out he really was a doctor. He really did work for the government. <laughs> and, and, you know, but his delusion played into his reality. And that happens a lot. Well, they tie into each other. And it's very hard to detangle. Some of them are really obvious and you know what's going on, but it's hard to detect some of those that could be tied into their real life and you don't know what's real and what's not real. Right. It's very difficult. And that work comes as like to investigative work. So as clinicians, we have to go in there and we have to dive in deep down and be like, how much is this real? How much is it? And it's really interesting the things you find out. So what are the basic treatments for schizophrenia and how effective have they been? Basic treatments kind of range throughout the years. Um, With schizophrenia and psychosis, you're looking at a lot of drug or medication therapies. Um, There's therapies that work on the dopamine system. It's called dopaminergic therapies. Um, Mm -hmm. It helps control the dopamine system because we theoretically think that's how schizophrenia is kind of being created is either the lack of or too much of dopamine. So these medications go in and theoretically we believe play with the dopamine system. And what they do is they kind of stick to those dopamine receptors and the more sticky they are, right? The, the we, I, it's not clinical terms, but the more sticky like the medication is, the less milligrams you give, the less sticky, the more milligrams you give because you want the medication to really stick to that receptor to help control levels. When it works, you notice a key change in features. Funny enough, talk therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy is shown to be very effective with people with schizophrenia. 
because we help them base back in reality. And so even um, mindfulness studies and mindfulness cognitive therapy, even Buddhists have been using mindfulness for, my gosh, hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And we integrated mindfulness studies into psychiatry and psychology and had shown to make amazing progress with schizophrenia patients. So we use everything from medication to psychotherapy and mindfulness and even virtual reality, funny enough now, in order to help um, kind of get them back to a baseline and gener or uh, function properly in life so they can be a functioning citizen. I was actually going to ask you about what's going on in the brain with someone who is experiencing hallucinations or who's living with schizophrenia, but it's interesting to hear that there's other ways and it's good to hear that all of that is effective. Have we come to a conclusion as what the cause is? So with schizophrenia, we really don't know how it starts. It's a very complicated disease. As a matter of fact, we researchers have been trying literally for decades to figure out what is going on in the brain that is making this happen. There are working hypotheses and theories out there. One kind of prevailing theory is glut glutaminergic, and it's a very fun word, but basically it's glutamate in your brain, which is like sugar. Um, and it's a certain receptor called the NMDA receptor in the hippocampus. And what researchers are thinking is that the reduced glutaminergic transmission of this certain receptor in the hippocampus causes schizophrenia. However, it is extremely up in the air. It's very theoretical right now. And to be completely honest with you, I barely understand it. So, but it's very interesting to see that now that we have so much technology like MRI, CTs, MRM, you know, all the big things, we can get way more high resolution images into a brain. And when we see that, we kind of look and we go, okay. And so some, like I said, structural imaging techniques have developed like higher resolution. And because of that additional kind of like volumetric differences um, in this in schizophrenia brain have been identified, which, and so when we look at it, these are all theories, of course, but a lot of focus has been on like kind of what we call superior temporal, which is like your temporal area, um, reported volume decreases in those regions. And it's the schizophrenia and the correlation between the volume changes in your brain and the actual characteristics of the illness itself. So what we see in MRIs and CT scans is that some areas of the brain are actually smaller in people with schizophrenia. And we think those areas of the brain, like the temporal areas or the limbic systems or stuff like that, because of the small um, differences in the brain compared to a typical brain, we think that might be a causation of schizophrenia. Yeah, and I know that like now that we have all this technology, it's easier to pinpoint all these like chemicals in the brain, but it, it's still difficult for us to target like what's triggering this. Oh, very hard. Usually there's tons of research in schizophrenia and psychosis itself trying to figure out how this is how this is impact like not just impacting the human but how is it started in the brain and a lot of it is bio-based and physiologically based and a lot of it too is even environmental there's theories out there thinking that if you are highly abused that you start to compartmentalize in your brain and that can create a subset of schizophrenia so we're looking at like a million things and there's proof on every level but nothing concrete quite yet Mm. I know we were talking about this earlier, but schizophrenia is a very misunderstood and stigmatized disorder. So what do you think has been, other than look what we're talking about, the media, what do you think is a main cause of that? And 
what else do you think has been a setback for the progression of understanding this disorder? The biggest setback to understanding this disorder, honestly, and this comes from a very sociological perspective and the mediological is the media. It's a huge setback. And we even talk about this in the, you know, educational institutions. It's just stigma is perpetuated by mass influence. And to step back to understand the illness, you're looking at funding. Like we don't have, there's not enough funding in research about schizophrenia. And because of that, we, there's so many setbacks. There's times where researchers will have an actual great understanding and be like, ooh, we have an idea. We think this might be it. And we need money to go further. And then people are like, oh, we're not interested in schizophrenia right now. And then funding dries up and there goes the research. So that's a huge setback is funding. If you can find funding, you're gold. So because of that, schizophrenia understanding is very held back because there's not many people interested in the people that talk to themselves. And I've heard funders say that, like, I don't care about that guy. I care about this guy because this guy will make me money. So it's all about money and it's so sad. It's really hard that that is the main thing holding us back, even though we could be doing a lot of good with the money that we have, but it's something that is really influential to people and that's hard. So it's a very um, misunderstood and people don't think it needs to be addressed. They're like, Oh, psychiatrist handled it. Don't worry about it. No, we, no, please help us. (laughs) Yeah. Because we definitely mental health professionals can't do it alone. And we need people. (laughs) Okay. Well, I think, I'm running out of time on my free Zoom. Okay. (laughs) So thank you so much for taking your time to talk to me today. We had a really interesting conversation and I learned a lot. Yay, good. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.